Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. And, you know, my thoughts were really one of really looking back to 2011 and, and knowing that we have just gone through that series in Ephesians. And if many of you were here um, when I was sort of like landing the plane, my, my thoughts were, I was trying to communicate that Ephesians or God's word isn't something we just plow through for the sake of plowing through. We do it because there's a purpose, there's a reason. And it's, it's like building blocks within our own lives. And we, we, we hear these things and we desire that they're bringing about change within our lives. And, and so, you know, many times in the New Testament, you, you, you'll hear the Apostle Paul, you hear someone saying, I'll, I'll bring this to your remembrance. I want to remind you of these things because basically, I'm sure Pastor Robert and Pastor Evan, we haven't got anything new to share with you, really. It's the same meat and potatoes. It's the message of the gospel. It's all about denying yourself and, you know, not, not letting your will be done, but letting his will be done in our lives. And that takes work, that takes effort. And so really, with me sort of like having something to share with you, it's really a question, which is a rhetorical question. And it is, you know, well, well, does God want any more of you? Does God expect any more of you? Does he expect any more of you in 2012 than he did in 2011? And Pastor Rob sort of alluded to that last week in his message. He's the same God. He didn't just become more God in 2012. And he was less God in 2011. So, you know, with all the things, and I'm just going to kind of like keep bouncing back to Ephesians. All the things which we've, we've heard. All the things which we learn, all the things which we understood, individually and corporately, you know, what does that mean to us now? That's sort of like, I don't know if it's the same question, but they're the questions I'm asking. You know, and I don't know if you're big into New Year's resolutions and things like that. I don't know if you are, I don't know if you're not, but a new year is a good starting point. And, and so, you know... In your own personal journey with the Lord, you know, what is he asking of you? Are you responding to the Lord? You know, when we looked through the book of Ephesians, you know, I was hammering it home that the first three chapters, doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And so the Lord is expecting that we know doctrine. That we know what we believe and why we believe it. We have to understand these things. We have to know these things. Because... You know, God has great expectations of his children. You know, and the verse or the verses in Ephesians which really just arrested my heart was to the fact that God has great expectations for his children. But he says, to the intent, chapter 3, verse 10, to the intent that now, when? Now. Now. The manifold, please, when you go home, look up that word manifold. 
I'm not going to tell you what it is. Look, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by who? By the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Jesus, Christ Jesus our Lord. We're the church. God has ex expectations. What is he asking from you in 2012? So the importance of doctrine, the importance of knowing how to walk with the Lord. You remember the last three chapters? How do we walk with the Lord? How are you thinking about walking with the Lord in 2012? Because it's important. God has expectations. That, that difficulty, that problem which has just eluded you all this time. He's saying, well look, 2012, time for change. Time to do something different. You know, within our personal relationships with each other. There needs to be change within our personal relationships as individuals, as a church. And, you know, Pastor Robert's going to come and speak a bit more about that in a moment. How long have I got? All right, good. So God has expectations for us, for, from us, for us, of us. And... You know, just thinking about the book of Ephesians as well, it's like, I know that many people are going through difficulties. And that's how, you know, Ephesians kind of like started to land, didn't it? it? It started talking about, oh, you've got difficulties, have you? Well, guess what? You're in a war. It's a conflict. It's spiritual warfare. Beloved, don't think these things strange <laughs> When these fiery, what trials? Fiery trials. You see, and, and many times it is fiery trials we come across. And it's not time to start buckling, it's time to stand. And having done all to stand, we stand. We fight, we engage in the conflict. Not in the power of your might, but in the power of his might. So, you know, we have to recognize 2012, there's still a war, there's still a conflict, there's still battles to be fought. And the lovely way that Ephesians just kind of like rounded everything and just sort of like packaged everything lovely and nicely was that Paul just said, praying always with all prayer and supplication. You see, prayer, has God, does God have more expectation of you in your prayer life? These are the questions. You know, when I ask myself those questions, it's yes, 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 yes. God wants more from me. It's like my children, when, when, when they said, oh, I've done such and such in an exam. And I say, well, there's always room for improvement. That's good. Always room for improvement. But I've got an A star. Always room for improvement. <laughs> Well, you see my point. So prayer, it's important that we pray. And, you know, as a church, you know, we, you know, if you've been around here any, any, for any length of time, you know that we, we pray of everything, you know. We're praying all the time, and that's good. That's healthy. And so, um, yeah, we do. We try to pray without ceasing. And we, it's in the power of his might, but it's in God's grace. You know, um, just going through the book of Timothy, over the last couple of days, I was encouraged where, where Paul encourages Timothy and he says to him, be strong 
in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace. You know, you could easily read past that and miss it. Be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. And just to close my little section here. Why? It's for by grace we have been saved. Through faith, come family, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For why? We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, these are just some of the thoughts I just wanted to share with you as we enter into 2012 individually but corporately as a local church. Amen? Amen. Pastor Rob. You know, I'm a man I don't like clocks. And I wear, I wear a watch because I have to, not because I want to. And I'm biblical. Thank the Lord that there's going to come a time when there will be time no more. <laughs> Amen? Now, Pastor P was a bit general. I'm going to zone in and I'm going to make something. I'm going I'm I'm to speak about something that is particularly specific. And I'd like to ask, or actually before I ask, can I say that this is something that we've been talking about for at least the past two, two and a half years. And I suspect we haven't identified it clearly on the radar until now. But this is something that we've been praying about. Can I just ask if you're female to put your hand up, please? Thank you, ladies. Have a look around, fellas, at the ladies. Put your hands down. Can I ask you to put your hand up if you're male, please? Have a look around, ladies. Not for any particular purpose, ladies, but just have a look around. <laughs> Amen. Okay, now I don't know if that was 50-50, but you know that typically women outnumber the men in church, right? Okay, now we're going to come back to that. What is the primary purpose of man? The primary purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? <clears throat> now, here at... Calvary Chapel, South London, I feel like we're coming to a point where we're able to articulate the way that we do that probably in three different ways with regards to what we are calling our modified mission statement. It's flexible. It probably will change over the next few years, but this is really the heart of what we're trying to do, what we're trying to establish, where we're going. This really kind of sums up who we are. We want to be a healthy church equipped the disciple and effective in our outreach. And like Pastor P says, hopefully this goes some way of responding to Jesus' mandate, to his great mission call in Matthew 28. Now, how many of you know we live in a me, myself, and I type culture, right? Last century was a century where they coined the phrase the personal computer, the personal stereo. Last, if you like, and, and even right through to the, to the 21st century, the whole issue is protection of personal space, like me time. 
Have you heard the statement, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can and poison the rest? This attitude contributes to the destruction and not the construction of society. Would you say amen? amen? Now, that's outside, but also inside the church. Now, the Bible contradicts that mindset, that paradigm, that, that, that way of thinking, and calls for a renewal of thinking. And like Pastor P says, Ephesians is, is orthodoxy, orthopraxis. It's, it's all that God has done, and what that means, three chapters, and the other three chapters is, wow, okay, we need to respond to that. We need to respond to that. <clears throat> One of the marvelous things that, that God has done through the death of the Lord Jesus, as Pastor E reminded us earlier, is that God has created a family. Ephesians 1 says, we've been adopted into God's family, right? In a spiritual sense, into God's family. With God as the head, who we affectionately call who? Father. Now that's big. Do you hear that? Father. And it's family-oriented language, isn't it? And we are, in, in respect to the fact that he's our father, we are his children. Again, family-oriented language. And we relate to one another, that is, in Christ, first of all, as a family spiritually now i'll come back to this whole issue of spiritual family in a moment also in ephesians we see references not just to the spiritual family but also to the biological family in chapter six we see references to the parents that is to mums and dads to children that is boys and girls right ephesians 6 1 through 4 it says children obey your parents in the lord for this is right it says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. There's a blessing attached to that. It's so good. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Verse 4, fathers, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Spiritual family, biological family, the Bible speaks to both in that order. Now, spiritual families, how many of you know, have issues? <laughs> we wrestle with them every week. Sometimes I don't want to come church because that sister or because that brother. We all struggle with relationships in our spiritual family, right? And we also struggle in our relationships in our biological families, don't we? And probably Christmas possibly highlighted that for some of us. And in, in light of that, the question that we would ask as a leadership is, is anyone listening? Some might say, oh, come on, Robert, man. There's no perfect family. Well, but does that mean that we don't strive for it? Spiritually and biologically. Does that mean that we don't strive for it? We have a perfect father. Chatting back, we ain't got a perfect family. We got a perfect father. I'd say that's a good starting place. Creating a, a healthy spiritual family, creating an environment for a healthy biological family. Two are important. A perfect father adopting children 
who is progressively perfecting them spiritually. Then the same, if you like, biological parents creating an environment where children are nurtured, trained, and disciplined. Perfected, if you like, matured. After the pattern of Ephesians 6, verse 1 through 4, mirroring Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 7. Now, how many of you know this shines a very bright spotlight on a very real problem? Is anyone in this room, <clears throat> I should say it like this, is there anyone in this room that doesn't come from a dysfunctional family? Now, it's terrible that I have to ask the question like that. Because the majority, I should say the minority, come from functional, normal, quote-unquote, families. The majority of us come from dysfunctional families. Now, you might say, well, Robert, this whole thing about the family, come on now. Really, there ain't nothing that can change it. And I think you're being a bit oversimplistic, really. As, as basic as this is, the question I'd like to ask, where do, you, where do you see when you look, where do you see a family doing this like this? And then you're going to tell me that it ain't an issue? And it's not an issue that affects every single one of us? Everywhere you look, you see the breakdown of the biological family. Listen to this. This guy's a judge. <clears throat> His name is, I can't even see it from me, my eyes are so bad. Paul what? Coleridge. Listen to what he said. He's a judge, right? As a family judge, and under the heading of family breakdown, a national tragedy in the Telegraph, right? I'll just set up for the tape, whatever. As a family judge, I have witnessed the damage done by the endless game of musical relationships or past the partner, in which a significant portion of the population is engaged. Recently, he says, I was approached by the BBC with a view to making a documentary about family breakdown. I suggested the researcher start by spending the day with me in court to watch a run-of-the-mill high court case. She was stunned into silence and remained speechless when I told her that within the royal courts of justice, there were 20 or so judges engaged in similar cases. Across inner London, well over 100 family courts, across just inner London, 100 family courts were dealing with family breakdown that day in one guise or another. Multiply that across the rest of the country and you get some feel of the scale of the epidemic. He goes on to say, obtaining a divorce is now easier than getting a driving license. A senior judge said yesterday, that's what he said, Sir Paul Coleridge, that wasn't yesterday, it was, Sir Paul Coleridge said a cultural revolution has made it possible to end the marriage quickly with a basic form-filling exercise. He added that the stigma attached to divorce in the past has also disappeared. The judge who presided over the bitterly fought divorce of Sir Paul and Heather McCartney blamed 50 years of relationship free for all for the spread of divorce on demand. He said the result was that 3.8 million children were now left at the mercy of the courts because of the breakup of their parents. 
The judge who sits in the, court, in the High Court Family Division, as Mr Justice Coleridge, has called repeatedly for legal reforms to clear up the mess left by the decline of marriage. He has blamed youth crime, child abuse, drug addiction, binge drinking, truant in and bad behavior in schools as the, in, on the meltdown of the family. And he has called for the government to set up an independent commission to reform marriage, divorce and family laws. He described the problem of family breakdown as huge and condemned the ease of divorce. In an interview on BBC Radio 5 Live, divorce is easy in the sense that obtaining a divorce is easier than getting a driving license. It's a form-filling exercise. Question. Who isn't contributing to this problem? Who isn't affected by this problem? Well, we all are affected by the problem. And we all are possibly guilty in one way, shape, or form of contributing to the problem. Now, <clears throat> because most people get this wrong, and I say that with regards to us all making mistakes, because most people are getting this wrong, if we get this right, the potential is a revolution in our midst. And, and we're doing it, we're not doing it, just because we want to make a better society. We're not doing it just so that husbands and wives live together happily ever after. We're not doing it just so that children are not abandoned, abused, or neglected. We don't even do it just so that it reflects on us as a healthy church. Fundamentally, we do it because it glorifies God. It's a righteous, reflective response to the biological family with regards to what God has done in his spiritual family. And this is where society is getting it wrong. And you know, society is basically made up of families. That's what society is. And we, can, and we can point the finger at Mr. Cameron. We can point the finger at the employment situation. We can point the finger at secondary schools. We can point the, the, the finger at the youth system. We can point the, the, the finger at the prison system. But who does God point the finger at? See, this problem goes all the way back to the garden. Who was guilty of eating the forbidden fruit initially. Well, Eve ate the fruit, right? But who does God point the finger at? I mean, he did eat the fruit, but she ate it first. You'd think he'd go to her. He didn't go to her first. He went first to Adam, and God, when he come looking with regards to the issue, says, Adam, where are you? We had a conference two years ago, two and a half years ago or so, you know what I mean? And that was a theme of the conference. Adam, where are you? See, everything goes bad when the problem initially really is with dad. And I think here's my big point. Here's our big point. Guess who it all starts with? The children, they weren't even in the garden, right? The the the, the does, does the problem start with the women? Well, partially, she has her responsibilities. But the man is primarily responsible. 
And note, we're not saying, fellas, obviously myself included, we're not saying that, you know what I'm saying, it's your fault that things are mash up. What we're saying is, you're responsible. We, as men, are responsible. See, Jesus is the ultimate man. Why? Because Jesus took responsibility that wasn't even his. He looked and he saw us in a pickle, which is an understatement, and he comes along and he takes responsibility that is not his upon himself for others. And that fundamentally is the model of a man. Someone who's willing to take... And what happens? God turns up and says, Adam, where are you? Adam comes up and Adam's like, well, cut long story short, you know what? It's, it's the woman that you gave me. It's her fault. And furthermore, it's actually the woman that you gave me. So it's partially her fault, but fundamentally, I mean, you're looking at me, boy, you're the one that gave her to me. And that's what we do, don't we, men? We like, to sh- we like to blame shift. But we can't continue to shift the blame. See, Jesus didn't do that. So he's the picture of an ultimate man. Now, I'm highlighting, like I said, I'm zooming in on one issue. I'm highlighting just one area that we as a leadership feel the need to respond to. Because it's kind of like, if you, if you lick down this giant... You know what I'm saying? Like Goliath, the, uh, the, war's, <laughs> the war's virtually won. Now, we don't have time to go into that. But over the course of this coming year, we want to spotlight husbands, fathers, single men, adults, right down to the crash. If you're male, the spotlight's going to be on us. In a specific sense in this coming. And as we do, this will begin to contribute. It's not the answer. It's a, multi, it's a multi-layered problem that needs a multi-stranded approach. One of the big strands is seeing men affected and changed. Because that will contribute to actually helping us to become that first aim, that first goal for us. Becoming a healthy church. With regard to us as a spiritual family made up of biological families and potential biological families, looking at the state of play. Seven weddings last year. I was going to say, imagine, I wrote down three weddings in my notes. By the time I can leave my seat and come up here, there's four. See, potential biological families. My gosh. This brings me nicely into the second point that we'd like to highlight. The fact is that this all starts, fellas, with us. It starts with the man, but then becomes the responsibility of parents, as we saw in that verse, with the man taking the lead in order to do what? Look back at the verse. In order, it's verse 1 through 3, but particularly verse 4, in order for fathers not to provoke their children to anger, but to do what? To bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What's that in a word? Thank you, S.O. Discipleship. Discipleship. And you know what? We can't make disciples until we become disciples. And that's the rub. That's the challenge. And we want to help us. We want to help 
men. We want to help young men. We want to help young boys aspire to be men who are disciples. We want to equip ourselves. So we want to be a healthy church. Coming to a point where we're equipping ourselves to be leaders. To be those who will lead by example. Follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ. In our own lives, in our homes, in our church, and hopefully also in our wider community. With that, I'd like to invite Pastor E to come up. You'll be glad to hear that um, today's message is somewhat of a sandwich. And so, all good sandwiches should have meat in the middle. (laughs) Amen. And so, let me just put the other bottom layer of bread on, and it won't be the crust. So we recognize that our mandate... Healthy church, equipped to disciple, effective in outreach. And hearing all that's been said, does God expect more of you in 2012? And you sit down and you, you know, like, breathe right back there, yes. Because there's always room for improvement, right? And the issue of the family and how we as, and let me speak to adults in the first instance, as adults are discipling those of our families because we see scripturally that's where the emphasis was placed when it came to discipleship. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. You're going to have a son. He didn't say you're going to go out and conquer kingdoms and you're going to go and subdue nations, but you're going to have a son. And consistently there was the mandate to train up the child in the way it should go. As Solomon said in the book of Proverbs. And so we recognize that we have a responsibility to be discipled as adults and to disciple others. And some of us are singles. You know, some singles you might be thinking, well, I ain't got no immediate family that I'm supposed to be taking responsibility for. So, you know what? That's good for them. My time will come and I'll enjoy my singleness while I have it. But actually, because we are a spiritual family, we recognize that actually, as part of a spiritual family, the same principle applies. And we are not to be self-centered, I-centered, like our iPod and our iMac and our personal computer and our... And it's... No, we're supposed to be other-centered. Even in our discipleship, us being discipled, you notice it says equipped to disciple. So the inference is, we're being discipled in order to disciple others. And it's a drum that we bang constantly because it's Bible. 
And so we see this and we recognize and are we really listening? Are we, are we focused on the family like James Dobson? Are we focused on our immediate family biologically? Are we focused on our spiritual family who we are a part of? Um, strengthening and edifying one another, encouraging one another in the Lord, building up one another in the Lord. And you might think about all of these things and think, oh my days, it's a lot. I struggle under the weight of it all. And I want to highlight a word that Pastor P mentioned, quite simply, grace. Grace. And I, I want to give you a, a, a small insight into it and an illustration that relates to where we're at as a church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we see the Apostle Paul talk about the thorn in his flesh. Now it's interesting because he talks about the thorn in his flesh and he had this issue that plagued him that hounded and haunted him, that he couldn't get rid of. And it was a thorn in his flesh. And he said it was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. And he said, specifically, I sought the Lord three times concerning it. I'm thinking to myself, bro, you can number the amount of times when I'm on the, I have to, I can't count the amount of times that I'm going before the Lord. He said three times. And Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. My, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul said he had a thorn in his flesh. Many of us can relate to that. In fact, some of us will go a step further and say that the thorn isn't just in our flesh. The thorn is our flesh. And we can't shake it off. And the reality is until we are caught up to be with the Lord and glorified, we won't. Galatians 5 tells us that the flesh wars against the spirit constantly. And we all feel that struggle within ourselves. The, 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 the struggle to stay pure and not defile God's temple in fornication. Or the, 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 the struggle to stay focused and committed to our spouse when we don't like them. Biggest joke. You've got people living like that among us. The struggle to stay focused and honor the Lord with our finances when we have opportunity to skank on our taxes. The struggle to be civil to that work colleague who has actually gone one step too far and you are ready to take them outside. Ladies, take the Vaseline out. Take your rings off. Because I know where some of you are coming from, so don't even bother looking at me like that. But that's the reality of the life that we live, the journey that we walk. And so whatever the thorn is, we recognize that, you know what? God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace, his unmerited favor, 
that empowers us to prosper. Unmerited favor that empowers us to prosper. Now you might think, prosper? Hmm, now you're talking. Long time I want to hear about making some money around here. Getting some more O's on the account. I'm not talking about prosperity in that sense. I'm talking prosperity that is greater than that. Prosperity that speaks of a prosperity of soul and a richness of life in regards to Christ-likeness. And so the favor of God, knowing that there is no more war between us and God, that we are accepted among the beloved, that we are the fathers and he is ours. That the beef has been squashed. The grievance has been resolved. Christ came in our place and bridged the gap and brought us in. We can, we can, be, we can be confident and assured knowing that we're at peace with God. And his favor is upon us. We can be encouraged that when we're facing the trials... And the challenge is that actually God is the ace up the sleeve. When it looks like you've been dealt a bad hand. Not that I'm encouraging you to cheat at cards. But he is that, that I was going to say X factor, the cross factor in our lives and situations. That actually transforms the challenges and causes them to be redeemed in his hands and to work together for good in our lives, making us more like Jesus. And this is what we see from Paul. Now, in the book of Ezra, we see that the children of Israel had come out of captivity and they were in under Babylonian. Nebuchadnezzar under his captivity and they had been released and were endeavoring to reestablish the place of God and his worship. And they came against opposition. The neighbors weren't happy. You ever had them kind of neighbors? Not happy. What you're doing is just and right in the sight of God, but they're not having it. There's nothing wrong in what you're doing, but they're not having it. And they came and they discouraged the children of Israel. And the children of Israel were building the walls and had almost completed. And a decree was made against them. Stop what you're doing. And so for a number of years, they stopped the work discouraged. And then God raised up Cyrus. And he decreed that the people should go and rebuild the city. And with this task ahead of them, there was something that made all the difference in their building experience. And for us as a church, you know, progressively throughout the course of the year and recent years, we've been adding structure, laying foundations, seeking to see the kind of environment that will be a seedbed and a healthy environment for growth. 
for our growth and for the growth of those that we reach out to. And so like Ezra and Nehemiah and the children of Israel, being in that building process, it's good for us to learn from one of the factors that made a huge difference in their experience. You see, in chapter 7, it says, Now after this in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of, 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 Aaron, the chief priest. That's the most important part. Son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. The hand of the Lord God was on Ezra. And he was empowered. He was enabled to be skilled in the word. And he was enabled with favor to forward the work of building. And you see, in relationship with Christ, God's hand is upon you. His face smiles at you and says, I am with you to give you the strength to accomplish the mission. I am with you because of Christ. And so we ought to be encouraged by that. But so often, we, even in our attempts not to be proud, can be guilty of that in an inverse sense, in a reverse sense. In the sense that we look at ourselves and say, woe is me, I can do nothing. I'm, I'm completely at a loss. Uh, there's, in fact, there's not even any point, oh, God could never use me. And we don't put our hand to the plow and give ourselves to what God has called us to do because we wallow in self-pity. And we remain self-centered in a negative sense. And yet God says, my hand is on you. Give yourself to the word. Oh, I can't study the word like, like the pastors do. I can't understand the Bible like they do. <laughs> you don't know where we're coming from. I left school with two GCSEs. That might have been one more than Pastor Rob. All right? Two more. <laughs> I, I can't even speak for Pastor P because... I know he's always been a disciplined and diligent individual. <laughs> so don't look at, you know, what we are, but think about what God has made us. And we're not even nothing. We're, I can say that confidently. <laughs> and yet we see that God was with them and God forwarded the plan. And Ezra was, his thing was that he gave himself to the word of God. Now you have to remember, they just came out of captivity. And so he didn't have ready access to the word in the way that they would have once had. 
And yet he applied himself to the word. To the extent that in verse 10 of chapter 7 it says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So Ezra, a descendant of Aaron, the great high priest, knew his calling. And he knew it was to give himself to the word. And not just to know the word, be able to talk doctrine. Well, you know, the eschatological ramifications of the... And it's not just about doctrine, but it says that he gave himself to do it. And to teach. And that is the mandate for every single one of us because in Peter we are told that we are a royal priesthood and that communicates the fact that the, the, the priesthood of all believers. We all have a responsibility and a calling in Christ to give ourselves to the word, to do it and to share it with others. But we're able to do so knowing that God's grace is sufficient. And as we grow, as a healthy church, giving ourselves to these things, healthy in our relationships with one another, that doesn't mean that there won't be issues, but it's how we deal with them righteously, resolving them, forgiving one another, loving one another, moving forward. That's healthy. Not this plastic, Hollywood cosmetic, never have a flaw. No, we get scarred and we get burned and we get bruised. But we forgive and we love and we move forward. That's healthy. And as we give ourselves to the word, and it's like Pastor P said, it's nothing new. We ain't come to give you some new revelation for 2012. If it's new, it ain't true. And so, let's continue to give ourselves to the word of God. Let's be motivated in our personal devotional life. Let's be motivated as we seek to apply it and work it out. Keep short accounts. Don't let things go adrift before we take issues in hand. And address areas of, of, of obedience in our life where, you know, the Bible says, to him who knows to do a thing and does not do it, to him that is sin. It's not just the things we do, but it's the things we don't do. Truly, we will be equipped to disciple and effective in outreach. And so, that's our considerations for the year ahead. Um, We recognize that as with the children of Israel, there are developments ahead of us. We came out of last year praying and actively seeking God and practically seeking for opportunity to change location and have a place that's going to be more suited to ministry. And the Lord is responding to our prayers. And as we'll see in the members meeting, we could have a very real opportunity that is the the next move in front of us. And even if it's not, let's be encouraged that God is responding to our prayers. We do not pray to a dead God. 
We commune with the living God. And so, let us be encouraged that these developments will take place and that we ought to be prepared and assured that God's grace is sufficient and will carry us and keep us and empower us to fulfill the mandate. Amen?